Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, we welcome back, after a long absence, our elite irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. That is so disappointingly normal, but it's so good to have you back. Ah. Speaking of it being nice to have people back, we welcome back our friend and designer of the official war game of Three Moves Ahead, apparently, uh, Tomislav Uzlach of Unity of Command. Um, hi, Rob. Hi, guys. Welcome back, Tomislav. Um, good that you're having me. And finally, we also welcome, for the first time, uh, Peter DeYoung, the scenario designer for the Unity of Command expansion campaigns. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, and good evening. Peter and Tomislav, maybe you can start us out by telling us a little bit about the uh, latest expansion for Unity of Command, uh, Black Turn. Uh, I don't think we talked very much about Red Turn on the show when it came out, so maybe you can explain to us a little bit about how uh, Unity of Command now sort of forms a trilogy structure and how these campaigns differ from one another. Well, okay, let let me... uh sort of take this one and then <clears throat> Peter as the scenario designer can sort of go into more detail. Um, well, we, we had a little bit of a problem because uh, obviously with the original game, we started in the middle of this conflict, which is the Stalingrad campaign um, in 42 and 43. Um, but, but the engine is really well suited to the nature of the conflict on the Eastern Front. So it was natural to, to, to cover the rest of the war. And um, for no particular reason, except maybe Peter's personal preferences, uh, the first DLC was Red Turn, uh, which was uh, basically the story of the Soviet, uh, of the Red Army, um, taking up the battle after the Battle of Kursk, basically, and then uh, pushing the Germans all the way back into Berlin. So that was our first DLC. Um, It came out last year. Um, And for uh, basically most of this year, we worked on our second and final DLC for this game, which is called Black Turn Operation Barbarossa 1941. Um, And in this DLC, we sort of go back uh, to the initial invasion of the Soviet Union um, by by, uh, Germans. Um, And um, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's, it's a very popular theme in wargaming. Um, and um, so I think all, all war gamers will be um, you know, happy to, to, to play. Um, I think in our system it works particularly well. Uh, and so in, in that respect, it was a joy to work on it. Um, um, I think we sort of get the, uh, the essence of that, of that campaign very well um, in, in our system. And you know, Peter will, will explain in detail um, how we um, sort of constructed that. Um, as to uh, the differences between the two uh, the campaign, we have the Red Turn, which is the Soviet campaign, which is a uh, methodical application of force uh, by the Soviets, who uh, by that time were overwhelmingly stronger, and it's just pushed from one line uh, to another in, in these... Uh, um, it's, it's sort of like a Soviet Blitzkrieg, but it's different, and um, when you play it uh, in, in the game, it really feels different to, to be like, um, having these uh, deep mechanized operation with Soviets. Um, in Black Turn, which is the original, uh, the original Blitzkrieg, um, you pretty much get the, um, you know, the, the German 
the initial German attack, which is like these headlong advances, uh, you know, completely held for leather, just uh, you go really fast, really quickly. Um, and then for about half of this DLC, um, you're just really throwing caution to the wind and advancing deep into the Soviet Union. And then sort of things become more difficult for the Germans. Um, and, you know, hopefully we, we sort of gave you, if you play, some idea of, you know, where things went wrong, um, you know, which is mostly on just the scale of the country and um, the, um, just the, the number of, of, of troops and units that the Soviets were able to field uh, against the Germans. So, um, yeah, so that's the that's that's uh, Black Turn, and you know, I hope people enjoy it. And I'll just let Peter sort of go into some more detail as you guys uh, maybe pose some questions. Uh, yeah, for me, the most logical reason for doing Red Turn first was that it was well, it, it felt more logical to do the sequel to the game first and then the prequel as a DLC. Uh, Red Turn would also be significantly longer than uh, any Barbarossa DLC would be. Um, due to its nature, a Barbarossa DLC, which Red, uh, Black Turn is, would feature primarily German scenarios, so there would only be limited room for any kind of Soviet operations before winter uh, sets in. And for Red Turn, we could at least offer, well, some of the more interesting, but also often overlooked battles on the Eastern Front, because most of the war games on 1943 and 1944 tend to focus on the Kursk Offensive, the collapse of Army Group Center, maybe the collapse of Romania, and then there's sort of a black hole until the, uh, the Soviets get to Berlin. So it felt more challenging to do that first and also more natural because uh, it would sort of follow directly after the, uh, the original campaign for the Soviets. Now for Blackturn, uh, well, it's it's a very different story that we're trying to tell compared to the original game and the first DLC. Um, in this case, you have, well, there's only a limited amount of time for the Germans to get to Moscow before the winter sets in. Of course, uh, historically, the Germans weren't really aware of that because it was assumed that the Soviet defenses would sort of implode fairly rapidly after the opening weeks. We know they didn't. So that was also one of the challenges for me to create uh, historical scenarios that were also still a challenge to the player without becoming a puzzle scenario, which is one of the points of criticism we've received for the original and the DLC. And, uh, well, maybe I should just uh, take the time to comment on that first. Um, to me, they are not really a puzzle scenarios because when I create a, a scenario, I try to offer the player the historical situation which he or she can then influence as it goes, but it should still have a, a fairly historical outcome. Now, that sort of automatically means there are only a limited number of ways a scenario can end. So it automatically becomes sort of a puzzle scenario by design, because you have to stick to some sort of historical guideline. Of course, it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't feel like you're confined to just repeating history. So in that sense, I understand the criticism, but it's just, it, it's just very difficult to 
create a truly open-ended scenario for this time period. So that's actually, that touches on something I wanted to dig into a, a little bit. And uh, real quick, Bruce, you played both the DLCs, right? Yes, I did. Great. Um, and I don't know if it felt this way to you, but for me, I kind of felt like, it, it's possible that for me, I just kind of prefer controlling German armies in the early part of the uh, Eastern Front okay. rather than late war Soviet armies because I think part of the one of the reasons that I I, I also felt that uh, Red Turn felt a little bit uh, more puzzle-like than Unity of Command uh, the original campaign did uh, and this one feel Black Turn uh, Barbarossa feels much more open to me uh, and a little more natural to play and I'm wondering if part of that is just you know, you talked about, uh, Tomislav, you talked about uh, how, how Red Turn is about this methodical application of force. And I think what threw me off in uh, Red Turn is just that the Soviet armies have such a different way of achieving breakthroughs and completing their objectives within the timetable that it felt very difficult and more puzzle-like just engineering it so that I could bring the weight of numbers to the decisive point and create some kind of opening. Uh, whereas for the Germans, it just feels a little easier. Their units punch through lines a little more quickly. They have more armor that can strike deeper uh, and cut off supply lines. There's more ways to achieve breakthroughs, and it feels a little more open. Um, and I'm wondering if it's just the nature of the way the two armies fight that led to the feeling that red that red turn was this uh you know like almost panzer general-esque uh puzzle setup and uh the original campaign and then barbarossa feel a little bit more um oh a little more like a more open war game design well i mean i think that i should just jump in here and um you know i really like the way that um that the unity command system address you know i think it's pretty much perfectly suited to Barbarossa, so I'm, I'm glad that it, uh, that it ended up getting a, a set of Barbarossa campaigns, which are great. I mean, the three different army groups, uh, I really like the way the whole thing worked out, but um, I think what you're, what you're experiencing is a difference in the way that the, the sort of the two forces matched up, because in, in the early war, the Soviets really had no idea what they were doing. Um, you know, they still had this, he this you know, very infantry-heavy force. They didn't apply their tanks properly. Um, and you're able to um, – the, the difference, sort of the difference in capability of the, of the two sides is, is pretty big. And that comes through really well in, in Black Turn because, you know, as the Germans, you, you sort of – you can sort of drive as, as, as far as you want, but there are consequences to doing that. Now, in, in – um, in red turn, I mean, the problems that the Soviets had was that even when they had the opportunity to launch large counteroffensives, and that even happened after, um, you know, that happened in in forty one in the uh, winter counteroffensive when they, they totally uh, uh, overreached and uh, you know, they, they just didn't have either the logistical capabilities or the command control capabilities to do what the Germans had done, um, and then. In uh, well, in forty-two, around Kharkov, they they tried to um, to do the same thing, and of course, got pretty badly defeated there. And then, uh, in, even in forty-three, you know, um, the Germans were able to the, the sort of the, the German strategy was to let the uh, was the, let the sort of spearheads kind of drive as far as they could, and then just cut them off 
uh, and deal with them, and that's what uh, Van Manstein did. Um, so I think that what you're what you're seeing in Red Turn is you have an army in the Soviets that's of getting to be much more capable, but they're already facing a German opponent that has mobility and knows how to use it and. Uh, you know, the two armies are much more even, even though the early war Germans are, you know, sort of technologically um, technologically inferior compared to their, you know, the later war counterparts, that what they're fighting is is a completely different force. And uh, I think that that's what you're seeing. You, I mean, you, it's it's a lot more fun to take uh, to take <laughs> tanks and drive them, you know, like 20 hexes, right? I mean, that's yeah. just, that's cool. Um, but you can't really do that uh, in 1943 as the uh, as the Soviets because you're going to get um, you know rightfully you're 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 going to get cut off and defeated, which is what happened to the Soviets um, in the early 43 offensives, um, especially in the South. Um, so I, I think the game works really well. Sort of, it's all about supply. It's all about how far where your supply sources are and how far you can. Uh, um, how far you can go and what happens to your units if they go too far, um, which is really, I think, what the whole 1941 campaign was. So I, I, did, I think that, uh, you know, Thomas Love and Peter, I mean, I think the, the Black Turn just does a great job of, of highlighting these things. I think it's kind of what, almost what Unity of Command was built for, it seems like. Yeah, if I could comment on that first. Um, what you're basically seeing is that the German army is based on matching quality with mobility. And for Red Turn, the Soviets tried to combine quantity with a limited number of mobility, which means that for the Soviets, the difference between everything and nothing is, well, there's basically nothing in between because they either get a breakthrough or they get stuck immediately. The Germans always managed to at least break through the initial defenses, even at Kursk or even uh, in 1945 at the Spring Awakening operation in Hungary, the initial Soviet line could generally always be breached, but the exploitation phase was a different matter. For the Soviets, they would throw massive numbers of men and artillery shells at German defensive positions, which would then either fall apart, in which case the armor could move through, or they would hold, in which case the Soviets would suffer horrendous losses and they would be set back one or two months to prepare for the next offensive. So I guess in that sense, you do get a more puzzle-like aspect for the Soviets because there's just such a thin line between victory and, and defeat. For the Germans, it's, it's more of a gray area. You can always accomplish something. The question is if it's enough. Well, I also want to address the puzzle-like aspect because I think the puzzle-like aspect is something that exists in all games uh, of this type, you know, where you basically have a, uh, um, you know, integers that you uh, sort of resolve with random numbers. And, you know, no matter how many, um, no matter how many units you set up and, and how complex a situation, there's going to be a mathematical solution probably that's or or multiple mathematical solutions that are superior to the vast majority of the you know there there's a pool of possible solutions and there are going to be a few that are best and i think that exists in in board war games as well um it's just that we don't know it because i can't play you know 50 opening turns of you know ted racers you know army group north because I, it takes you know, it takes more time to set that game up than it does to play 50 games of Unity Command. So I think that 
the whole idea of a puzzle, you know, the puzzle-like aspect. I mean, just look at, um, you know, Shenandoah's uh, I, uh, iOS uh, games, the, you know, Bulge and, and Drive on Moscow. I mean, there's some element of puzzle to that because they're clearly opening moves. I mean, in, in, in Bulge, there are three moves, right? You have to make those three opening attacks or, you know, you're not playing the game optimally. And I think that, you know, stuff like that can exist in something like uh, Unity Command, but there's no, I mean... You have a historical situation. You shouldn't have moves. You know, it, everything shouldn't be the same. I mean, they're going to be the 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 combatants chose a certain, uh, you know, certain line of attack and, and strategy for a reason. And if you're going to create a game that sort of uh, that simulates that, then you're going to have a, a, a pool of of of, uh, of choices that's going to seem much better. And then people say, well, you know, if you, if I don't make these moves, and then then I don't, you know, I didn't play the game right. Um, which I think is just an artifact of the system, but I think that uh, the key is to to make that pool of moves, you know, larger than just you know, oh, I have to move here and then I have to move here and then I have to move here. I think that uh, um, I think that because of the the mobility that's that's present in 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 Black Turn, uh, it's less susceptible to that than the other games. Yeah, but let me just uh, let me just add that. Um, be- it's a lot of times you can perceive um, a scenario to be a puzzle uh, you just for the simple reason that you are able to play it multiple times as as, as Bruce said um, just think about it these guys originally you know the commanders they didn't have the luxury of playing this multiple times you, you had to get it right the first time around um, and so um, now obviously if you replay uh, one situation over and over again um, you know, it's you're going to narrow it down to a set of more or less optimal uh, solutions, um, like the three turns you mentioned. So I think maybe we're, um, you know, it's it's um, it's a bit difficult on the scenario designer uh, to say, you know, this has to feel like not a puzzle even after I played it 50 times. I mean, come on, with a fixed initial setup, you it's going to have to acquire a little bit of that. There's no way right. around it. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Uh, to me, this is still a superior system to a more traditional combat resolution table system where you can roll anything between a one and a six, and like one, two, or three gets you absolutely nothing. In this case, at least, there's some variability in what you can do because um, if I would play, for example, uh, a traditional board game or one of the uh, games by SSG, like mm-hmm. uh, Battles in Normandy or whatever. If I don't roll a 5 or 6, my stack, no matter how powerful, isn't going anywhere. So that sort of introduces too much luck, in my opinion. So I would rather have sort of a puzzle that I can manage and I can balance the scenario for than the enormous variability in uh, how many 6s some uh, player rolls instead of how many 1s he rolls. I understand, I understand that idea. Um, I think that I mean, yes, that that feels better. It feels better to me as a player when I have an overwhelming attack, and uh, you know, in one case, I know that if I roll a one, then I'm hosed, and in the other case, I know that I'm, I'm because of the fact that I have overwhelming odds, I'm going to get something out of it. Um, I think what it does, though, is that kind of system sort of leaves you um, the, the overwhelming variability of the uh, of the SSG games does give you sort of a, a broader range of outcomes because if you know 
uh, in advance that a certain attack is going to at least get you something, then uh, you know that the outlier possibility is where something terrible happens, and now you have to deal with the you know the chaos of the terrible uh, doesn't exist. So that I think that makes it feel a little more puzzle-like as well. Although doesn't that also introduce the the feeling that uh, players also tend to hate, which is you get completely screwed by the dice. I, I mean that's I mean that's the other trade off, right? Is that like it's it's nice in in Unity of Command, for instance, if I see there's a salient or something that I want to break down, and I've got a ton of units. I mean, I can sort of do the math and figure like, okay, look, even if things go poorly, these units will eventually batter down the guys holding this line, and then my units will my my army units will get some kind of breakthrough, whatever. And that's the trade off I'm willing to make, and we're going to make it, and that's and that's going to work, and that, and it seems and that sort of seems like, you know, talking about like the way things feel fair or not, this is actually really kind of. Uh, I think wargames struggle with this because, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, you look at you look at history. War isn't that predictable. It's not you can't guarantee a certain amount of attrition in a given engagement. But I think players want to be able to count on that. Certainly, I sometimes do. Uh, whereas, it, it, you know, there's nothing worse than the feeling on you know turn one of a twenty turn scenario or something. You know, you got three attacks that need to happen that need to go at least okay, and they all completely fail. And at that point, the timetable, of the scenario is just like, well, uh, now you're playing for a draw, and that's kind of that's kind of a that's a lousy place to leave the player. And I don't know how you can, I, I don't know if if there are systems that really uh, resolve that too happily. Well, I think that part of that though is the difference between playing a game on the computer and playing the game in front of somebody. Because I've noticed, and I've actually commented this in other places. Um, when we were desi- um, I was playtesting Drive on Moscow. Um, we we're talking about El Alamein and, and various roles that ha- hap- had to happen in that game. Um, one of the concerns was that the in the, in the electronic game because they were just kind of taking taking um, you know board game elements and just putting them in the on the iPad. And I feel like in the computer or on the iPad or wherever where there's some external thing that's that's generating your numbers for you, that feels like you're getting screwed. But if you're sitting in front of somebody and you take a die and you put it in a, in a cup and shake it and then it comes up a one, then it's kind of like you screwed up, right? Even if it's the dice, I mean, you did it, right? You rolled the dice. It's not somebody else rolling the dice. Um, and there's a sort of a personalization of that effect. So I think that the, the kind of weird random outcomes feels a little more acceptable when you're sitting across the table from somebody. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, th- the other thing that it does, though, is that uh, when you post uh, multiplayer uh, after action reports, uh, everybody's always always throws in something like, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, got bad luck with, uh, you know, whatever, this attack or that attack or the dice host. And it's always a very, you know, it's nice because you can always be very polite to your opponent and say, why the hell did you, you know, why did you, you have to move to that space? You just... Uh, Oh, you know, you got a bad roll. So, Peter, there's one thing I wanted to ask you though, and, and that is, uh, did the reception that uh, Red Turn got? Because I heard from a lot of people, uh, sort of in the same place uh, that I was, maybe even more so, that they were frustrated with uh, Red Turn, uh, and I ended up actually enjoying it quite a bit. I played a lot of that expansion, uh, but it did feel like it was just punching me in the gut repeatedly uh, at times. And I, I do wonder, like, 
is it just the historical scenario and the, the difference between the two armies that account for the differences in the way the two DLC feel? Or did you also, did, did you take away lessons from the way people reacted to the to how Red Turn played out? Uh, well, of course, I made my own analysis based on the feedback I received. But it's, um, to me, most of the criticism came down to uh, well, what you described that it could feel very puzzle-like, and that as the Soviets, because your unit quality isn't usually all that stellar, you could sometimes just completely fail with attacks in one sector and thus lose the scenario or at least not get a brilliant victory. But to me, that boils down to um, the non-linear nature of the system and the enormous quality difference between German and Soviet units. That was also one of the challenges I had to face and solve for Blackturn. Uh, the average Soviet rifle unit, which in Red Turn is uh, rifle core size, and in Blackturn is usually just a division, is just so much weaker in almost every aspect than even a single reasonable quality and reasonable strength German infantry division, that the, vari the variability in results you can get is almost impossible for me to balance. Uh, I playtested every scenario for Red Turn extensively. I was able to manage to get a brilliant victory on all of them. But in some cases, you would just, well, only one or two bad rolls, and it would completely, well, it would, it would just stop you in place. But it's, it's virtually impossible to balance a scenario against that probability, because if it doesn't happen, and I increase the turn limit for one objective by one turn, I will immediately get criticism that it's too easy. And I did receive that. So it's always um, a balance between catering to the hardcore players who really play well, uh, like the aforementioned three opening moves that have to be done to maximum effect. Well, those players would do that, and uh, novice players wouldn't. But it's, um, it's just very difficult to balance uh, any scenario. And I've also seen that in a number of other war games where there's just such a huge gap in quality and capabilities between the two sides, and that doesn't even factor in the weather. Uh, one scenario for Red Turn, uh, crossing the Dnieper, uh, was initially, uh, it had a, a time limit that was one turn less than the uh, actual time limit in the release, but I increased the turn limit because there was a fairly high chance you could get mud and thus wouldn't even be able to get to Kirovograd uh, or Krivoyrog, I mean even if you would play optimally. So it's just, there's so many random factors that I could uh, I could really screw up the balance if I increase turn limits by one or subtract one turn from a certain objective turn limit. So I do understand all the frustration, but it's, um, well, there's only so much I can do, basically. That might sound like a really lame excuse, but there are always the confines of the system that I'm working with. No, and I don't want to make it sound like we're grilling you like, hey, why, why do these expansions, you know, piss people off or anything like that? I mean, ultimately, like, I got over my issues with um, Red Turn in part because I learned how to, I guess, think like a Soviet commander, right? I had to think about how to grind down the units in front of me rather than just punch a hole and cut them off. Uh, it, was a, it was a very, it was a, you know, it was, it was interesting coming after unity of command. It's this huge leap uh, from everything unity of command. Uh, the original campaign teaches you about that game and how to play it. 
Uh, and then Red Turn sort of felt like just ripping the rug uh, right out from under me. Uh, but it was kind of rewarding to sort of figure out how to be a you know Soviet tank army commander. Um, so it was it was interesting the way it, it brought out the differences uh, between the two sides. But I want to talk a little bit uh, more about uh, just Black Turn. Can, can before you do that, can yeah. I just say one thing about the whole thing? Look, people are going to complain. I mean, it just – you can't win, and it just – on one hand, you have to please the people who sort of plink around with the game and, you know, oh, a tank. Oh, I'm going to attack this guy, right? And then the other guys that are – you know, that have Excel spreadsheets and are figuring out what the best attack is, and, you know, one group is going to feel frustrated. The other group is going to say, oh, well, you know, I play after the 10th time I played it, I, you know, I know exactly how to win, and this is boring. So, I mean, what are you going to do? I think that you have to figure out some way to make the game feel challenging. Uh, and I, I thought that, you know, I thought Red Turn did a great job with that. I thought that, you know, it was really hard when I first started playing it. You know, I've played a lot of war games. But, I mean, eventually I, I figured it out. I got a lot of play time out of it. And so, you know, I, I just, you know, you design what you design. I thought that, that the, desi- the the thing you, you really often play around with, I just would make one comment about Peter's uh, balancing things is that you know when you have big uh, variations in uh, unit quality you kind of you have to play with the victory conditions and decide what you know what is a win and you can sort of say well uh, you know this side should be able to achieve x objectives but we're going to give them make them get x plus five to you know really test them um, and i thought the i thought the the levels of victory in, in unity command really do a good job with that so i mean eh so people say it's too hard or too easy, whatever. Just anyway. All right, let's talk about Black Turn. Yeah. Uh, could I add one further comment? Or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it was amusing to me that after the criticism that some scenarios, especially the initial ones, would be too hard, that the later ones in Red Turn were perceived as being really easy. And that was amusing because you're still using more or less the same units, although the Soviet units did get a bit better with the uh, D3485s. But it's uh, it's still essentially the same game. The reason it feels like a very different game is primarily because the German defensive units are just not up to much anymore. Uh, the primary criticism I received was, I believe, mostly for the initial scenarios, like the, uh, I believe it was the Christmas Offensive, um, where you had several elite or veteran uh, SS Panzer divisions that if the AI would dig them into a city, would be virtually impossible to remove uh, due to the ratings assigned to it by the system. So that's just uh, a classic example of the system working against the player, because if the AI would dig in a regular German infantry division, you would just need to park a couple of rifle corps with artillery next to that hex, and it would be perfectly possible to remove it. But if the AI parks an SS Panzer division in that hex, it's virtually impossible to remove. And unfortunately, I can only give the AI hints what to do with its units, but not uh, sort of create a guideline for where it should put its units under certain conditions. So that's also the enormous variability. If the AI uh, doesn't have those Panzer divisions because you've either destroyed them initially or because they're not present in the scenario, a scenario will feel well, sort of exponentially easier, even though uh, the core of the system hasn't really changed. Yeah. If, if, um, if, if, if I may add, this is where uh, sort of the, uh, the simplicity of the rules sort of works against us. 
<clears throat> because we always, uh, and I specifically mean the victory conditions, uh, because we, we always wanted to just, uh, make them really simple, and which is why I only have turn limits. Um, and so what the AI does in this situation, I think, Peter, uh, you were referring to the rovno Corson scenario. Yeah. Um, where the uh, where the AI would just sometimes dig in a very strong um, armored or an SS unit into a city, and there was no way you could dislodge it. And that's really not unrealistic um, in a time frame of four or eight days that the Soviets would just be unable to do that. Um, the problem is that the, uh, the, the victory conditions do not discourage the AI from doing that. Um, and, you know, it's something that perhaps is for us to think about for, you know, future installments. Um, so the AI is basically playing um, according to the rules. Um, what's happening on the ground is unrealistic, but is, uh, I'm sorry, realistic. But then the players end up frustrated because, uh, you know, they're playing for the brilliant victory in that case. Um, and uh, what can I say? It's one of those uh, what can you do situations. Yeah, it's sort of our variant of the common problem in many war games that in scenarios, unit losses are often completely irrelevant. So you can just park a killer stack somewhere and it doesn't really matter if it dies as long as you hold the objective. In a campaign game, you wouldn't be able to sacrifice units so easily. So that was, to me, also one of the other very difficult aspects about designing historically accurate yet also balanced scenarios. Because in many scenarios that are linked in a sequence, you would fight the same units over and over, which might seem silly to the player, especially if you keep crushing them over and over. But it's just the nature of the smaller scenarios that the AI or the, your opponent will be far more likely to dig in some quality units somewhere and risk losing them because it's irrelevant compared to a campaign game where he has to keep them around. Yeah, and it, it also seems like the moment you create levels of victory like there's something you know there's a brilliant victory out there that you know you you can get it it is achievable the moment you like sort of wave that flag at the ball uh like players fixate on that it's it's, it's really interesting it's 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 i'm of two minds about it because i've had games where i've almost destroyed my enjoyment of something just knowing there's like some level of victory or achievement that i haven't gotten and that I could get, and so I'll play the same scenario again and again and again, uh, trying to get it. And you know, rather than have that experience arrive organically, where I you know realize, my God, I can achieve all my objectives. Uh, you know, this amazing time frame, I'm doing really well. It turns into uh, this. It probably exaggerates the sense that there's a puzzle because knowing that victory condition is out there, that, that standard victory is out there, you, you start to think, well, I just need to find the key to unlock that door. And that's what the game becomes about. And at that point, uh, you know, it, it does sort of stop feeling like so much a war game for me and more of a puzzle. But my solution to that is, is kind of been to stop obsessing over brilliant victories uh, and, and just sort of, you know, when I get one, it's awesome. But I really had to stop fixating on uh you know the ideal timetable for scenarios because living and dying by that and restarting scenarios when it becomes unachievable uh just becomes profoundly unrewarding and uninteresting to me yeah that's just to me that's just wrong that's just the wrong way to play the game uh, at the same time I'm, I'm aware that a lot of people actually do precisely what you just described 
and uh, it's something that I sort of continually think about um, to uh, to sort of we should be very careful when you know sort of talking to the completionist in you or you know in a player. Um, at, at the same time, you know the brilliant victory is a very uh, is a very successful mechanism to create uh, you know, a continuing challenge for you. So we need to find something that will replace that. Uh, and at the same time, not trigger these sort of, um, you know, compulsive completionist uh, things that I, I don't think, I don't like them either. I agree with you, basically. Now, digging a little more into uh, Black Turn specifically, um, Bruce, you've invaded uh, Russia possibly more than anyone I know. Every day. Uh, so, you know, I think the last, the, the last time we've done this on this show, uh, and we did it a lot was with, uh, War in the East, mm -hmm, uh, right. very different sort of war game, oh, but yeah. I, I'm curious, uh, you know, your reaction to the unity of command treatment of the subject and, uh, how you feel it ends up like, I know it's apples and oranges, but I, I would be interested to hear the comparison between these two very different systems approaching uh, the, the same the same subject matter. Yeah, it's not really apples and oranges. It's more like like apples and mostacholi or something like that. I mean, it's <laughs> just just not even the same thing. Um, but um, you know, I think that any good uh, you know any good war game, there's this whole thing about designing by feel um, and versus designing sort of by data. Um, and, you know, one sort of one end of the philosophy is that you sort of make the game uh, according to the, the designing by data. You sort of you, you figure out what all the strengths of every unit, is, you know, what the strength of every unit is and where it was and what it could do and give it capabilities and then try to make the game work uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the numbers interacting with one another. Another sort of, sort of design philosophy i think is that you, you you figure out what the what the sort of overall gestalt was of the campaign right and you just kind of make the game play that way and then you start tweaking things to make sure that you know the you know a late german panzer division is is still stronger than a you know an early war soviet you know rifle division um but you, you you'll 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 sacrifice some stuff in order to have the game play right. And the thing that I I like about um, about Black Turn and well about Unity Command in general, and I think it's gotten better as you know some of the scenarios are 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 um, um, more suited to the system. Some are not. Um, that it, it I feel like the the base system is very. Um, the base system is very rooted in actual, you know, designed by data kind of uh, logic, but the um, but the game itself plays like a game that was designed by feel. And what I mean in, there is that you know the whole um, the whole feel or the way that we've that we think about the um, the early campaign in Russia is that the Germans just sort of um, you know, use these uh, these sort of mobility and firepower tactics to com just completely discombobulate the Russians. Um, and only now, I think, as some of the archives have been opened, and people like David Glantz are uh, are um, you know digging through and and sort of 
bringing the, 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 the there's a there's a whole myth to the Eastern Front. I think that the you know the Germans just kind of rode all over everything, but then they ran out of gas and kind of sat around, and then um, and then they got the gas. You know they you know they filled up their gas cart again, so the tank got more gas, and then you know then they drove again, but then you know the weather ran out, and that was it, right? Um, and so you get that kind of feel, but um, you don't really have, and, and that kind of puts a, a, a Soviet player in these in these games in a weird position, right? Because you're not, I mean, you're not really supposed to be able to do anything according to sort of the received wisdom of the Eastern Front, right? I mean, the, the Soviets didn't do anything, right? Um, they just sat around and got run over, and then that you know, then they didn't give up, and then it took the Germans forever to clean out these you know nests of of, of stragglers, but um, and partisans, but. What are you going to do, right? What's the Soviet player going to do? Just you know, just say, okay, I don't do anything every every turn. Um, what so what you find is that you know the Soviets actually did have you know they they were completely uncoordinated in terms of you know combined arms, but they just through for, sort of force of numbers and force of determination, they did have some pretty uh, you know pretty damaging counterattacks. And uh, you know at at Smolensk, the whole um, the whole uh, sort of thing that the campaign, you know, hinged on was the, um, you know, the, the Germans, the Germans uh, did manage to encircle a whole bunch of Soviet units, but it, it it ended up being tremendously costly for them, and it and it basically stopped them, uh, and then the, the Soviets just kept counterattacking, counterattacking, and losing just tons of guys, but they they uh, they kept the Germans from from you know restarting the offensive, and in in unity command you can do that by the Germans are always worried about their, you know, their supply and, you know, you can, you can cut people off with, um, with, uh, you know, if you make a mistake, then all of a sudden like, oh, I didn't see that guy could get there. Oh, well, I guess these guys aren't moving this turn. And um, I, I think that that, while it's not, you know, it, it's not faithful to the to sort of the letter of the of the historical record it really kind of is faithful to the spirit of the historical record and i and i like the way that the game plays um in, in that way oh uh, yeah if i could comment on that it's um well to use the example of the battle of smolensk one of the enormous challenges in a war game is creating a scenario where the second player the defender can counterattack after he is basically been forced to well um, react to a broad front offensive by a more mobile first player, in this case the Germans, who in this case also has an enormous quality advantage. Uh, in Unity of Command Black Turn and also in the aforementioned War in the East, a historical battle of Smolensk just isn't going to happen, which is also why I cut the scenario short after just after the Soviet reinforcements arrive. So you should get the impression that, okay, from now on, it's going to get really tough. And it is really tough to get to the final objectives on time. But generally speaking, it is achievable. In War in the East, you would get, for example, a stack of um, three rifle divisions with a combat value of, well, maybe two each. That could be blown away by a single 20 combat value Panzer division. I was also heavily involved with testing War in the East in the later stages. It's just um, one of the lessons I learned from that is that, well, aside from that simplistic logistics can really wreck a system, like in War in the East, where the German player can just use uh, HQ build-up and roll across the Ukraine in five turns, which is one of the primary problems with the system. Uh, it's very difficult to create a situation where, after a certain point, the second player is suddenly capable of 
of resisting. It's very, very difficult. Yeah, let me just let me just drop in because Peter, you say that it's not possible to happen, um, and I think it's uh, perhaps something that we've run into uh, many times in in designing uh, this uh, this DLC is that somehow uh, because you're designing and then in the initial phase you're also playtesting and you sort of subconsciously assume that everybody is going to play this like you do and of course both Peter and myself are kind of specialists in this system and so for us we will just play through Smolensk and it will get a brilliant victory or something close and then it doesn't play out, but it, realistically, the Germans did not achieve a brilliant victory at, at, at Smolensk. If you play a little bit, uh, you know, if you're a little bit lazy coming there, if you're not really, you know, striking hard for it, and I've seen <clears throat> in the testing and some playthroughs with other people, in, it can get really hairy for the German player. Um, you know, the, the Soviet reinforcements arrive and it looks pretty good. So, if you're playing on the sort of um, on the limit as to how it should be played, if you're very skilled, it's not going to happen. But it's going to happen to some people, uh, and that's just about as good as it gets, basically. Yeah, uh, to add to that, uh, what I meant was that the actual counteroffensive, in the sense that the Soviets start attacking your units and inflicting fairly serious losses, is unlikely to happen. But they will stop you if you don't prepare for it. We've also made the scenario more challenging by making some of the objectives that the Germans captured in uh, early August after the Soviet counteroffensive was halted. Um, well, you have to capture those objectives now just to account for the fact that you have all kinds of advantages over the AI and to make the scenario more challenging. Uh, to add to that, well, Tomislav and I usually refer to the Stalingrad scenario in uh, the original game as a scenario that gets harder the longer it takes you to play it. Well, Smolensk is the same. So in a way it punishes the players that don't use all the optimal opening moves, but it does make it far more interesting over time. You know, there's there's a couple things that I've really been enjoying in particular about Black Turn, and the encirclement thing brings it to mind is that one of the neat things is it really captures what a double-edged sword, a mass encirclement, really can be. It's cool to pull one off, where you suddenly just chop a supply line off and you have, you know, a dozen Soviet divisions, uh, you know, slowly running out of uh, the ability to resist, uh, which is cool. But before that happens, they can still move and they can still fight, and... Something that happens a lot in Black Turn, or it's happened this way for me, is that you end up with these sort of, um, you know, encirclement and counter-encirclement maneuvers happening uh, all in the space of a few turns. We're trying to keep and hold that cordon uh, where the advance units are still in supply for the Germans and the Soviets are not getting anything so that you can eventually just mop them up really quickly uh, becomes kind of a game in itself. And you, like I, I find there, there are times when I simply bite off far more than I can chew, where it's like, congratulations, you have trapped a massive number of Soviet units in a large pocket, uh, and it's also a pocket that I effectively can't control. Uh, that it that it's something that now I actually have no forward momentum because everything is about keeping these guys inside a cordon, uh, which, which is completely historical, by the way. I mean, that's that's sort of the essence of the German problem. Yeah, like I I find I I end up in these sort of self defeating positions where it's like, okay, yeah, I, the entire game becomes about uh, not making 
progress toward the objectives that are further back, but uh, playing this this weird, uh, you know, almost like tic-tac-toe game against these encircled units as we try to block each other's uh, route, uh, links to supply. Uh, it's 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 really nifty. I, I don't think you know. One of the things I love about Unit of Command is that it sort of has this ability uh, to cut to the heart of certain things uh, in on the Eastern Front. It it really sort of brings them into sharp relief, and I feel like this is one of the areas where it really succeeds. Where you get you know a lot of the strategy I'm using is sort of uh, hammer and anvil uh, against the Soviets, but then it also shows the uh, enormous cost of you know, even when that succeeds. Yeah, well, it's interesting to compare the Smolensk scenario in Blackthorn to the Kiev encirclement scenario, because in Smolensk, your armor is uh, way at the front and your infantry is essentially nowhere to be seen because it's still, well, it's barely reached Minsk. So you have to punch through with just your mobile units, which is quite possible, but you do have to make more difficult choices than if you could uh, for, uh, attack the first Soviet line with infantry and then break through. In the Kiev encirclement, the Soviets are basically presenting you one of the largest encirclements in modern military history on the silver platter, because you have both the mobile units and the infantry units available. Uh, we've balanced the scenario in such a way that particularly uh, the Panthers in the south uh, need to wait for a turn or two because, before they can appear, so the infantry needs to create a bridgehead first. But in the north, you can basically uh, sort of roll with the disaster and, well, utterly screw up any kind of coherent Soviet resistance because of, of their forward deployment around Kiev. In Smolensk, that's very difficult because you're attacking towards the main Soviet concentration instead of away from it. Something else that I, I'm running into a little bit with, with Black Turn is that as a German commander, I, I tend to be really... Um, loss averse i really want to make sure this uh those four strength uh you know veteran panzer units remain uh at four strength i want to keep them healthy so they you know keep hitting as hard as they do and and don't get destroyed in counterattacks. um and it le it's interesting because it's led me a few times in this game to when i encounter really stiff resistance my first instinct is to just say, well, okay, I'm going the wrong direction. So where are the Soviets not? Where 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 can I go around them? I've got to get these Panzers into open ground, away from the main line of resistance, so they can achieve a breakthrough. And it's interesting. I, I find that I have to almost there, there's this balance that that Black Turn is asking me to strike between committing to a line of attack and actually achieving the plan I set out, but then also being flexible enough to sort of detour uh, when when that's not going well. But if you're too flexible, and my tendency is to be a little too uh, loss-averse, uh, I, I find that it's really easy in, in, in Black Turn to completely fritter away the strength of your armored spearheads in all these little like tendrils uh, through soft points in the line that ultimately lead nowhere. You know, yeah, you broke through. Congratulations. Uh, you know, my my breakthroughs, uh, and this is happening a lot in the uh, typhoon scenario, uh, which I want to talk about in a minute. But my breakthroughs are happening where it's it's basically feeding my best armored units into these cul-de-sacs of death, where it's like, okay, I broke through into the convergence of a forest and a river. Uh, with Soviet infantry on all sides, uh, so that led nowhere. Uh, and it, it's it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting the way um, 
Black Turn is sort of forcing me to make these choices between either committing to a coherent plan in the face of resistance or risk, like, diluting my strength too much. That's just good scenario design is what that is. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Typhoon, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Typhoon because uh, it's it's enormous. It, it, it is it, is it the biggest scenario in uh, in Unity of Command? Uh, yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's this there's the Soviet scenario in Black Turn, the uh, the sort of reverse of that, the uh, January offensive, uh, but it's still I think a little bit smaller. Yeah, because I'm I'm stuck on Typhoon, um, and it's just destroying me. Uh, so I was I was up late last night trying to figure out how to how to make that work, and uh, it's 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 not off to a brilliant start. But it was it, it's this it's interesting because on the one hand it's also just a bigger it's on a bigger scale than anything I've seen in Unity of Command. But also I find that going back to that theme of Unity of Command bringing things into sharp relief, I don't think I've ever really appreciated how difficult the approaches to Moscow really are. Uh, until I played the scenario. Because if you, like, comparing it to a game like War in the East, there's so many factors in War in the East that terrain itself, um, to me, doesn't always feel like necessarily the biggest obstacle. I, I view it as more this melange of different factors uh, that are creating problems, uh, w- which is true. But it also means I don't read the terrain as carefully as I do, say, in a game like Unity of Command, where I'm staring at this map of uh, the 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 rivers and forests and and roads that lead to moscow and looking at it and like realizing my god there's there is no clean approach to moscow like wherever i go there's i'm going to be hitting a city a river crossing or a forest uh that's that's just the way that's going to go and it's 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 neat the way that sort of brought that into focus yeah i think that the that the the typhoon scenario it's a little, it's a little harder for the Germans, I think, at the beginning than from what I've read. It was historically. I don't know, Peter. Maybe you can talk about that and see how how you ended up designing that. Because I felt like I wasn't. Maybe I'm just not playing the game right, but I wasn't creating the the, the big initial encirclements that um, that I think the Germans were able to um, when they started. Well, it was sort of a, a compromise solution because it's such a lengthy scenario. Um, I had to give the Soviets the ability to resist until turn 17 or something like that. So you won't be creating all the epic encirclements uh, directly, but over time you should still be able to defeat all the divisions that were historically defeated. For example, uh, if you get to Vyasma in a reasonable amount of time, you will still be able to uh, damage or just tear apart the Soviet units in the area. It just, well, the AI is also not fixed in place like many Soviet units would be until Stalin decided, okay, let's pull these guys back towards Vyazma, which was an order given far too late compared to the German mobility. In game terms, as you have to move, uh, especially on the southern approach to Vyazma, you have to move through a forest. So it's going to be a little slower than it would be in real life compared to what the Soviets can put in your way. But overall, I still feel it's, uh, on average, it's a fairly historical representation because it does allow you to weaken the Soviets and it allows the AI, or the Soviets in this case, to also retreat to Moscow 
and still form a credible defensive line there. Because if I would allow you to encircle uh, most of the initial Soviet concentrations uh, in the Vyazma area, there would be very little in your way uh, up until Mosaic or something. So there's, there's no way to address that with uh, with supply restrictions? We've tried that. We've had several rebuilds of the scenario. Well, actually, my original idea for Typhoon was to make it two scenarios because I was afraid it would be just be too big and it would be nearly impossible to balance given the variability of the weather. And unfortunately, uh, it can still happen that a, a, a very random sequence of mud rolls can prevent you from winning, but that's just, well, it, the chance is minimal, but it can happen. So in order to avoid any of that, I initially wanted to make Typhoon two scenarios, one for the breakthrough near Vyasma and one for the for all the things Second Panzer Group did. And Second Panzer Group actually has some fairly good terrain tank country to advance through, but it has very little infantry. So that's also one of the nice things about the scenario, that you're you're really waging two kinds of wars in one scenario. In the north you have to advance through a couple of forests, you have decent numbers of infantry, but there are also quite a lot of Soviet units, and your tanks are nearly as powerful as they would be in clear terrain. In the south, you have good tank units. Um, Soviets are a little light on the ground, but you don't have a lot of infantry, so you have to attack everything with your tank units. And if one of those seven-step Soviet units with a KV-1 specialist is digging into a city, it's going to take you some time to remove. What would that have looked like if you had done, I mean, two scenarios? Would you then have opened up the, the beginning of the first one? Um, well, about halfway through the map, actually. Uh, there would be one infantry army supporting the Panzer Groups, a third and fourth Panzer Group near Vyasma, and most of an infantry army supporting a second Panzer Group. The main problem with making it, making it two scenarios would be that I would have to cut the map in an impractical location, namely somewhere near Tula, which would make an approach to Moscow by 3rd and 4th Panzer Group a frontal one, which is historical, but it is also far more difficult to balance because in that case, the AI could just form line after line of units um, directly west of Moscow, and you would get the familiar problem of a wall of units in place that you could realistically just destroy as they're little more than a nuisance, but considering the time you have for it, it just isn't possible. If I may just drop in, the, so basically our our uh, decision was between making smaller scenarios that would perhaps have more historical fidelity, and then this big scenario, which is uh, a little bit more, as Bruce said correctly, it's a little bit maybe it's a little bit hard in the beginning, uh, but that's really just reflects our difficulty to. Uh, to balance it and to make it work, uh, work over such a large area and such a big number of turns. Um, and so we opted for for, uh, for the big scenario because I think it tells you a story and that's the thing that we sort of come back to over and over again, which is it, it tells you the story of the, of the assault on Moscow. Uh, whereas, um, you know, the, the smaller scenarios would, you know, probably be uh, address Bruce's concern. Um, at the same time, it, it wouldn't be, you know, in the context of in the entire campaign, probably wouldn't feel as, as right. And, you know, the, the concern about the initial uh, breakthrough is, while correct, 
is uh, it's it's relatively sophisticated. I think uh, we have to sort of give the correct message on a on a more basic level, which is how did it look for the Germans to to approach, and so it's a, it's a bit of a compromise. I, th- I think overall, I mean, I I I, um, I like the way that the 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 campaigns. I've gotten I haven't gotten through them all, unfortunately. Um, I've just been playing with the different scenarios and and seeing how they work because I knew that I was if I tried to. Um, you know, play every scenario. You know, chronologically, I was going to be get, get about twenty percent of the way through before we started talking. Um, but uh, what what was the biggest for you guys? I mean, with with the uh, with the balancing and the sort of trying to when you when you were when you were putting all the scenarios together. I guess it's a question for Peter. What was the one thing that you thought? You know, if if you um, had to go back to sort of your first principles. What was the the thing that sort of tied it all together? That you're like, okay, if it doesn't, if it if, it, if the scenario doesn't do this, I have to rethink how how I'm designing it. Maybe re- completely redo it. Well, that's a difficult question. Um, well, like I said, my personal preference for Typhoon would have been two scenarios, so that was really a compromise solution for me. Um, I still think it works out really well in the end, but it uh, it took me quite a lot of time to do that. Uh, Typhoon was our main problem child. In terms of what scenario works best, uh, well, my personal view on design is that it should it should also be historical and fun at the same time, which can be, well, it's not always a match made in heaven. But when I try a scenario, my basis is always it should be achievable by the historical time frame, and a brilliant victory should also be always achievable in that time frame without requiring any excessive luck, like getting a good roll or uh, not getting a mud turn when there should normally be one. Whereas uh, Tomislav's view on scenario design is a bit more focused on uh, playability right from the start. So I, I have sort of a I sort of balance the scenario the other way around. I look at the end result first and then work to the beginning, whilst Tomislav would look at the beginning and then work towards an end that he feels comfortable with in terms of what the player can achieve. So for me, the initial scenarios, the three opening scenarios for the army group, North, Center and South work really well, because in that case, I was able to stick to a fairly historical timetable, whilst also making all the historical objectives achievable in time and still giving the German player a challenge in terms of the resistance the Soviets offer. But uh, particularly with Army Group North, uh, there were there were some balancing issues because uh, Peskov was very difficult to capture on time. Everything had to, well, you had to make every move perfectly, so to speak. But the rest of the opening scenarios, uh, well, I could basically design every scenario to my usual standard of making them possible within a historical time frame, and the only really problematic scenario to that was Typhoon. Uh, also keep in mind that Tomislav designed uh, two scenarios himself, so maybe he can comment on those to uh, explain the difference in, in the way we design scenarios. Because Tomislav's scenarios were seen as more challenging than mine, uh, also because they were hypothetical, but also because of the way he designed the scenario, probably. So, Tomislav? Oh well, yeah. I think uh, my scenarios are probably more challenging because they come at the end of the campaign, right? The, uh, these are the hypothetical scenarios, which basically happen after you've captured Moscow. Uh, and and as Bruce said, this oh, I'm sorry, as Rob said, it's not that's not very easy. 
you know, when you start playing, which in my opinion is how it should be. Um, you know, if we make it very easy for you to capture Moscow, then, you know, what, you know, what were these Germans doing? Um, and so, so, so basically the scenarios I've done um, in this DLC uh, personally are the uh, two hypotheticals that come after you capture Moscow. Um, and they're not wildly hypothetical, which is just uh, sort of like an extended offensive around Leningrad. And uh, should, Rob, should we do spoilers? Uh, yeah, because I don't, I don't think I'm going to get to... Uh, look, <laughs> Typhoon's really hard, okay? Moscow, <laughs> not easy. Uh, so yeah, you can give us an outline of, of, of what awaits. Uh, so I'm guessing no Mecha Stalin and Mecha Hitler battling it out. No, it's all within the realms of, of uh, you know even possible, and it's plausible. I don't think you know it's hard to say what's possible, what's not. But you know it's an you know it's, there's a very uh, very tight scenario in the north, which is uh, one of my personal favorites in the game. Um, and then another scenario in the south. Um, yeah, that's, that's the most interesting one because we've essentially, or at least Tomislav has turned uh, sort of the historical situation around. Uh, in that scenario, that was originally a scenario where the Soviets would attack, but that was fairly tricky for us to balance and it wasn't really much fun. So Tomislav had the brilliant idea of making it a scenario where the Germans attack after they've captured Moscow. And the scenario in the north is basically just an enlarged uh, Dikvin offensive scenario. So it's semi-historical, aside from the fact that you also have to capture Leningrad to keep things interesting and that the Finns participate actively. But the scenario in itself is really, um, it's sort of the crowning gem to the DLC, in my opinion. Maybe, well, maybe we disagree. Peter prefers this one. I prefer the northern one, the um, around Lake Ladoga. Um, the, the southern one is where we sort of turn the AI on you um, in a big way. I mean, a lot of people that play will feel that the AI is already doing that. But uh, we sort of tinkered with the AI hints and the way they're set up. And so I think in, in the really in the final, final scenario of, of unity of command, uh, which is this final scenario uh, in the Donbass, uh, you're going to get the AI going really after you. And, uh, you know, from, you know, from discussions and from the what I got from the testers, it's uh, you know they found it pretty spectacular. A lot of people have been enjoying it, and it's sort of a sort of a, for us, it's it's a sort of a guideline of uh, what can be done with the AI in an offensive role for the future. That's actually uh, I, I want to touch on that a little bit actually because these scenarios, all these campaigns are basically built around whoever's on the offensive. And in, in most war games I've played, defensives tend to not be all that interesting, unless they're really active uh, defenses, right, with like lots of counterattacks and, and dealing with holes opening up in the line. But for instance, you know, I play War in the East or something. When I'm playing the Soviets, it's kind of interesting to see how you can sort of throw up roadblocks before the Germans, although since you're not playing under Stalinist constraints, uh, you don't have to lose half your entire army uh, in the in the opening turns, which is cool. But in terms of like actual what you're actually doing as a player, defensive role tends to not be terribly exciting. It's a lot of, okay, fall back to a good position, dig in, now wait, maybe have a few reserves. It, 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 gets, it gets very passive. Um, and unity of command is is such an 
active game where so much of the game is about opening up uh, supply lines and cutting off the other guy. Um, what what does a a what does a sort of reversal of that relationship between a defensive AI and attacking human? Uh, what does the reverse of that look like in Unity Command? What lessons did you get from this uh, from this scenario that point the way to making that work? Well, the first lesson I think is that we it we got a feeling that it was possible um, because of the system. Uh, at, 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 we sort of used a, a one of the hints that are in the game anyway, uh, which allows the AI to use um, some limited attacks, um, which is famously used in the Stalingrad scenario in the original campaign. And a lot of people were sort of startled when. In front of Stalingrad, the AI counterattacks you, well, if the conditions are right. Um, and we sort of like turned that up to eleven in this scenario. Um, and uh, the, the AI will will you know aggressively go after you. Um, this is coupled with the situation, um, which again is not a historical of a massive Soviet concentration on on, on one of the German flanks. Um, and and so I, I think it's it's it's. It's really exciting now. Whether this is going to be, whether this is going to be used for scenarios where you are purely on the defense as the player, or it's going to be used in a, in a, in the larger scenarios, like for instance, like in Typhoon or Typhoon size scenarios, where you would be on on an overall attacking role, but the AI will have the ability to sort of concentrate and make these local determined counterattacks that are spanning multiple turns that remains to be seen i think perhaps uh you know we could end up you know it, it would be more exciting to see the latter case which is in a big scenario with the ai sort of being really aggressive and making these local limited counterattacks um as you say being purely on the defense uh may not be as fun but uh it remains to be seen we have to try it so as as we wind things down here, I guess you know the Eastern Front is kind of done. You you you've done the the three major phases of, of that war. I, I guess I wonder. Uh, you know, it's a good time to ask what's next. Uh, we talked. You know, last time you were here, we talked a little bit about how. Uh, I think you were saying that the unity of command design is really uniquely designed and tailored around the needs of uh, World War II warfare on the Eastern Front. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily adapt itself as well to to some other theaters of operations or other conflicts. Uh, so I guess, you know, can you give us a hint on, on where your thinking is turning? Do you see now the system is being more adaptable? Or uh, do you have a completely different design, different war, in, you know, in mind? Oh, no, no. it's going to be an evolution of the current system. It's just we have to figure out new stuff. Uh, because basically, as you, as, you, as you said, you play the Soviets and through the mechanics of the game, you were forced to adapt a different style and you sort of learned something about the mechanics of being a Soviet commander. Um, and then, of course, with the Germans, you play differently. Um, now, the same thing with like a novice player and an experienced player. A novice player would try with these frontal attacks and then he would be 
you know, sort of um, alert, you know, be taught to um, use these, uh, to, you know, to pierce the line and to make these internal circlements. So we tell a story through the mechanics and we sort of, um, you, know, you know, sort of bring alive the, the sort of style of command that you have to have. So obviously, if we go to other theaters, we have to come up with new stuff that will um, do the same thing. Now, um, you know, the, the short answer is I don't know yet, but there is a bunch of ideas that I'm working on. Are hedgerows kind of boring? I feel like I, I feel like unity of command would would like you know the if you look at the Western Front, I was just thinking you know I I, I struggle to see how this would work say in Italy or in in Northern France in, in particular because it does seem like this is a this is a system that maybe is lends itself a little bit less to really dense terrain with a lot of sort of grinding attrition. Well, yeah, yeah, and I see where, what you're trying to tease up, but I, I think uh, basically the you have to bear in mind that the conflict in the West was was not uh, as exclusively about the land component as it is in the East. So I think what is necessarily going to happen is in the West is going to be much more about air. Uh, it's going to be uh, about you know there's going to be amphibious component. There's going to be um, airdrops. Um, also, it will have to be uh, a lot about intelligence, about knowledge. So um, I think that's the way to sort of uh, make it. Um, you know, that's that's the the themes that we're going to explore maybe uh, when we go west. Um, it's it's difficult to say anything more precise, uh, but yeah. I mean, I think that the uh, France nineteen forty actually would work well. Uh, with the system, or better than the, than France 1944 might. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, we don't really have any means to replicate the enormous CNC issues that the French had. So the Allies would always be able to play a far more optimal game than they would historically. Hmm. That would require extensive engine changes as well. That's sort of the primary problem with any 1940 France game, that the Allies have all the information they need. They know precisely where the panthers are. So unless their units are fixed, which our system currently doesn't allow, mm. uh, they can always prepare a far more effective response than the historical response. But I agree that in terms of terrain, it would be um, it would be the more logical next step, even though there's only room for a handful of scenarios there, which is sort of a problem. Right. But we cannot make it a game about, you know, another game about encirclement. Um, um, and, and supply because um, you know it sort of worked um, in, a, in a different way. So we have to sort of uh, again work with the mechanics and, and find things that will make it really um, will really tell the story about that um, that kind of conflict. Well, we'll see. I have you know there's some ideas that we're discussing. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I, I really, I, I really did enjoy uh, Black Turn, and and think that you know, it's taking these, the these three, you know, the sort of Eastern Front trip check you've created, uh, it, it's really an impressive achievement, and uh, it's, it's been, and you know, obviously, it's, it's the game that comes up, uh, war game that comes up more often than any other on Three Moves Ahead, uh, these last couple of years, but it's, um. It's been a delight playing through that war uh, through Unity of Command, and 
you know, I'm very excited to see whatever you guys do next and uh, what new conflict uh, you'll be tackling. Uh, thanks, thanks for uh, sort of consistently following us. Um, and you know, in the in the early days of the game, thanks for um, you know giving us a chance and you know doing your part part in making uh, you know uh, making the game uh, more visible. So uh, yeah, when you know when you get something, we'll make sure to call you. Awesome. Uh, until then, uh, thanks so much for having made the time to uh, join us this evening. I know it's uh, difficult with the with the time zone, so thank you for uh, being flexible. Uh, and as always, uh, my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together. Uh, we will be back next week with uh, some kind of topic. We've got a few different irons in the fire, and uh, I think Bruce and Julian are due for some kind of argument over worker placement games. Yeah, that sounds uh, great. Yeah, it's gonna get it's gonna get super nerdy up in here. Uh, but until then, uh, this has been three moves ahead. Good night. Good night, gamers. Mm-hmm.